Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, we're just a couple of weeks removed now from the big super middleweight pay-per-view clash between Canelo Alvarez and Caleb Plant just around the corner. And uh, just the other day, Canelo uh, held an open media workout. And I have to admit, I don't know if you saw it or not, but I felt a wee bit envious, actually. Um, I mean, look, we all know Canelo has it all, right? He's got the youth and the talent and the success and the adulation and the riches. And the reason I was really a little bit envious was he gets to roll up to a media workout and what actually appears to be a very natty pair of PJs, actually. (laughs) And I thought to myself, man, it's just like some guys have it all. But then it occurred to me that at least since the pandemic, and for all I know, maybe before, you've been a bit of a wear-the-old-PJs-to-work kind of guy yourself. Am I right? (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Since uh, long before the pandemic, in fact, for a good portion of the last 15 years or so since I first started working from home. Um, You know, sometimes I'll go from PJs to daytime sweatpants uh, pretty early in the day, you know, before walking the dog in the morning, I'll get out of the PJs. But then sometimes there are those days where the PJs stay on well into the afternoon. Um, But I have to say, my PJs do not compare to Canelo's PJs. Those are stylish. I would imagine one pair of them costs more than the nicest three-piece suit in my closet. They're probably made from silk spun from some exotic endangered species of worm that only lives in Tibet or something. Um, Exactly. I, I wonder if Canelo is actually out to prove wrong the old boxing aphorism about sleeping in silk pajamas. He's announcing to the world... I don't just sleep in silk pajamas. I wear them to open workouts. I wear them when the all-access cameras come to my house. I wear them all day and all night, and I'm still the best fighter in the world. Uh, So how about you? I know you don't uh, leave the house a a whole hell of a lot. Are are you a working PJs guy? No, I wear a suit, Eric. (laughs) Yeah? All the time. Okay. Morning, noon, and night. Yep. It's a a one-piece suit. Uh Uh-oh. I think um, I know where this is headed. It, yes, it's, it's it's my birthday, <laughs> and uh, I, I occasionally will slip on a t-shirt or a hoodie for our Zoom calls, but otherwise, I am as the good Lord intended. <laughs> well, if the good Lord had shares in Crisco, maybe, but um, but yes, but that may also explain why I no longer get invited to things like open workouts. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, uh, Kieran, the, the male form is really not meant to be on display. Uh, as Elaine Bennis said, the male body is utilitarian, um, especially the <laughs> the middle-aged, non-professional uh, athlete exactly. male form. Uh, no, nobody needs to see that. You know, if, it's, if we're talking about, like, in-shape pro boxers, maybe some right. find them pleasing to the eye in various states of undress. But, uh, yeah, if I, if I can give you one piece of career advice going forward, it's more clothing the the less skin anyone uh, yes. can see the more you'll be afforded professional opportunities yes that's that's probably the best i mean you'd think i'd have learned that as living mostly in alaska and vermont for god's sake but <laughs> right. there you go <laughs> um all right this week on the podcast we will preview saturday showtime championship boxing triple header headlined by jamal james versus rajap putayev and we have an interview you will not want to miss with Jamal James himself. Uh, We've got a lot of news to cover, including more injury postponements. Uh, Eric will count down the all-time top five heavyweight title fights. But 
we start with some in-ring action from Atlanta, where on Saturday night, U.S. Olympic silver medalist Shakur Stevenson stepped up to the most meaningful test of his young career against Jamel Herring. And it actually proved not to be much of a test at all. Indeed. And, and from where I sit, that's not because Herring was worse than advertised. It's because Shakur was simply that good. He won every round on every judge's scorecard except one. I only found two rounds all fight that I could even think about giving to Herring. And, and ultimately, I didn't give him any. And late in the ninth round, Stevenson cut Herring over the right eye with a left hand, which led to a stoppage at exactly the halfway mark of the 10th round. I'm not sure what sports books that set an over-under of 9.5 <laughs> rounds do in this situation. Uh, anyway, ref Mark Nelson stopped the fight with Herring protesting and not really hurt, but also bleeding and not having any realistic shot at winning. Kieran, would you call this a statement performance from Stevenson? Uh, what impressed you about Shakur in this fight? And did you spot anything you'd like to see him improve on? I would absolutely call this a statement performance. Um one can always armchair quarterback and pick holes in just about any performance and look for things that the guy could have improved on. But I think after a fight like this, if you're doing that, you're mostly doing that to prove that you can find things, <laughs> that, you know, that you know what you're talking about. Right? Yeah. I, you know, there's some, it would be churlish, I think, to, to, to pick holes in some of this. Um, it remains to be seen, of course, how many fights and victories and titles Shakur Stevenson's going to accrue over the course of what could well be a, a an illustrious career. But the fight that pops into my mind quite early on as I was watching this was Floyd Mayweather, Diego Corrales, right? Mm. Like Floyd did a huge amount after beating Chico, of course, and his greatest successes came years afterward. But any Mayweather highlight reel includes that performance. Yes, he'd already looked spectacular and against Gennaro Hernandez, for, for example, uh, Angel Manfredi. But he went into that fight against Corrales. That was a fight that it was not considered inconceivable that he would lose. And he ended up utterly dominating Corrales and showing there are levels here. I'm levels above that. This was a little similar, I thought, in some respects. Um, it's by some distance the most memorable and, and significant item in his career so far. Mm -hmm. And I do suspect that whatever he does, at some point, this will be looked upon as the moment when he showed to the rest of us that he has what it takes, that he could well be as good as he probably thinks he is himself. Um, I did expect him to slip inside Herring's punches. I did expect him to want to land punches in close. I didn't expect him to stay there. I, I thought he would look to dart in and out, you know, either be well outside of Herring's reach and use his foot speed to get himself in or to slip inside and not give Herring room to throw. Instead, he just moved into the spot where he wanted to be and he stood there. And he made Herring move backward, and then he followed him, and, and he marched him down pretty much all night. And that was not what I expected to happen. Um, he did use his speed and his boxing ability, but he was also the bully in there. Um, and, and that, to me, was a surprising and impressive element of what he did. One of the things I enjoyed from watching it is that it showed, it showed different ways in which a boxer can think in the ring, right? One is good and one is not. When, when Anthony Joshua looked lost against Alexander Usyk the other week, we talked about how AJ was thinking too much while Usyk was doing. And here you could see Shakur's thinking, but not in the sense of, oh God, what am I supposed to do next? He knew what he wanted to do. He was just on the constant lookout for when to do it to maximum effectiveness. As soon as he saw a hint of an opening, he struck. Whereas Herring was looking much more like AJ, confused, mm -hmm. outmatched physically, and in terms of raw talent and speed, and completely unsure of, of what to do. I was very impressed with Stevenson here. He had a game plan. He knew exactly what to do. He had the ability to do it. 
Um, and he dominated from beginning to end against the man who, like you said in, in your intro, this isn't really a knock on Jamal Herring. There are levels here. And Stevenson, I think, showed fairly definitively what we suspected might be the case, that he's on quite a different level here. Um, so let's spin it forward. There's talk now of Stevenson against Oscar Valdez to unify 130-pound belts, maybe as even the next fight for both. Do you see a clear favorite in that fight? And also, um, I'd like to direct pound-for-pound pound questions to you since you still make a formal list. How close is Shakur to the top 10 right now based on that performance? Uh, I'll answer that pound-for-pound that pound question first. Uh, he sure looked like a pound-for-pound pound talent on Saturday yeah. night. I think if we're taking resume out of it, if it's just mm-hmm. eye test, uh, you know, it's it's how good do I think everyone is right now, he is somewhere in my top 10 probably. Mm. But, you know, that's not how pound-for-pound pound works. Otherwise, Boots Ennis, who we'll be talking about later in the show, he'd be in my top 10 also. You need to have proven it to some extent. It's a combination of ability and accomplishment. And Shakur is still at least one major win away. I, I probably wouldn't even quite put him in my top 20 yet, but he, he did a, make a big leap closer in, in this fight. Mm. Um, you compared it to uh, Mayweather against Corrales, uh, and uh, I guess they both shared uh, the ending there of KO10 Indeed. in addition to other things. Uh, the commentators made a Mayweather-Gaddy comparison in round three, and that's what this fight was looking like at that point. He was looking that good and that dominant, and then Herring started mixing up his approach, doing a little better, not winning rounds, but mm. making it more competitive than Arturo Gaddy certainly ever did, and, and making you even wonder if maybe he could get back into the fight if Stevenson started to slow down at all, but Stevenson did not slow down. Uh, based on the evidence of this fight, Shakur does have pound-for-pound pound talent. I think his skills might be comparable to Bud Crawford's, um, but mm. Crawford has more pop. Um, if Shakur develops a little more as a puncher, I could see him reaching the, the top three pound-for-pound pound in a couple of years. Um, and of course, if he were to beat an Oscar Valdez that might be the kind of win that would get him into my right. top 10. I, I like that fight a lot. It's the perfect next challenge for Stevenson. But I would make him a clear favorite right now. Uh, Val- Valdez is an excellent fighter, but I think he's going to have trouble matching the skill and talent of Stevenson. Now, of course, I've underestimated Valdez before, but for me, if they make that fight, if Stevenson is like a minus 200 favorite or anything shorter than that, I, I would bet on Shakur in that one. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it would be a fantastic fight. Um, you know, Stevenson would actually have a height and reach advantage, I think, in that fight. Um, but sometimes, you know, even the shorter guy, you know, Valdez can fight as a longer guy, to use the distinction that Breadman offered on the pod a while back. And so that would be intriguing. Because the faster the two, he'd have the clear advantage there. Valdez can box, can be a cerebral boxer, even though he's gone to be much more of a brawler lately. It's hard, you know. Uh, as Larry Merchant would always say, boxing is really a case of, you know, what have you done for me lately? And he didn't look great last time out against Robinson Conceição. And you think of like what Conceição did early in that fight in terms of befuddling him a little bit with speed. And then you think of what Shakur Stevenson might do. Um, yeah, you'd make Stevenson a big fight, a big favorite in that. But boy, you sure want to watch it. Yeah. All right. Stevenson Herring was, of course, in Atlanta. And another boxer who's done very well there in the recent past, just in terms of victories and crowd attendance, is Javante Davis. Which leads us to this week's Tweet of the Week. And in an utterly shameless act of corporate ass-kissing, 
The tweet of the week this week comes from our Uber boss, Stephen Espinosa. And to make it even more ass-kissy, it's a response from him to a tweet that was trying and failing to troll the upcoming Javante davis Raleigh Romero fight in Los Angeles. Uh, Rick Glazer, who some of you may know or know of, most probably, he fashions himself sort of the velour-clad wizard of boxing Oz. Um, <laughs> but he also kind of has a hair up his butt about PBC and Showtime. Tweeted, Geez, if Tank Davis is such a big attraction in Atlanta as Mayweather Promotions and others claim, why is Tank fighting at the Staples Center in L.A.? I would need a real compelling revelation answer that's mind-altering. What's the genius thinking behind that process? Hashtag boxing. Well, ask and you shall receive, Rick. Um, Steve had a pair of responses. They're going to be co-tweets of the week here, which is even more ask kissy. One was... If Oscar De La Hoya was such a big attraction in Las Vegas, why did he fight at Madison Square Garden in New York City? Or the Sun Bowl in El Paso? What's the genius thinking behind that process? And then in his next tweet, expanding the horizon a little. If the NFL is such a big attraction in the US, why do they play games in London? If Real Madrid and Barcelona are such big attractions in Spain, they're soccer teams, by the way, Eric, in case you didn't know. (laughs) Why do they play each other in the US? What's the genius thinking behind that? So, yeah, it was it was a pretty simple kind of response and a pretty obvious one, really. I don't know if it proved to be mind-altering. <laughs> there are lots of things I dislike about being in and around boxing, but one of them is the abundance of individuals who like to portray themselves as objective savants but are really kind of glorified trolls. Uh, it's always kind of nice when they get taken down a peg. Nice one-two punch there from our big boss. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I saw these tweets and very much enjoyed them. I, I think I retweeted one of them Uh Rick Glazer is a strange character. He's been in the boxing business a long time, but I'd never heard of him before Twitter. Uh, whatever whatever he did okay. was very much behind the scenes, I, I guess. Um, yes. I, I don't know him IRL, so I don't want to overcommit to a position. But based on what I know of him from social media, not my kind of guy. Very, very much the opposite of my kind of guy. <laughs> so I, I'm glad Stephen put him in his place use some quick and easy examples to blow up Glazer's whole talking point, which is often all it takes. You throw a little logic-fact combo at them, and they're down for the count. And then uh, then all they have left is to embrace an alternate reality with different facts and try to claim the NFL doesn't actually play games in London. It's a CGI'd crowd. They're playing on a TV soundstage in Burbank <laughs> or something like that. So anyway, well done by the boss man. You, you, you don't want to punch below your weight on Twitter too often, but... When you decide to go that route, you got to at least make it count. And I, I think Stephen did with this one. And we should point out that we are at the time of the year where such words as contact renewals start being discussed. <laughs> and I don't know any other podcasts that are giving you Tweets of the Week award, Stephen. Just <laughs> it's a, saying. It's a good point. Just saying. It's a good point. He, yeah. I mean, he's in the running yeah. for uh, Tweeter of the Year, I would say right now. Whether he wins that, uh, to be determined. Absolutely. To be determined. Exactly. It's in your hands there, Stephen. Right. All right. Um, let's turn our attention uh, to the fights coming up this Saturday night, starting at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. It's a Showtime Championship Boxing triple header live from Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. Two significant welterweight fights, plus an opener in the lightweight division. And let's talk about the main event first. The man we'll be talking to shortly, Jamal Shango James of Minneapolis, 27-1 and with 12 KOs, ranked in the top 10 in the loaded welterweight division by TBRB. 
making his Showtime debut, uh, somewhat surprisingly to me, given that he's been around a little while. Uh, he's facing Rajab the Python Butayev of Russia. Uh, for pronunciation purposes, I just keep telling myself it's Rajab rhymes with Oddjob for you Goldfinger ah, super there fans go. out there. Yeah. Um, Rajab Butayev is 13-0, 10 KOs, undefeated. But he briefly had a loss on his record. He lost a decision in 2019 to Alexander Besputin, who subsequently failed his drug test, and the result was voided. This fight is part of a four-man tournament that a sanctioning body is ordering, but it's complicated because one of the men on the other side of the bracket, your Dennis Ugas, wants nothing to do with the tournament. He just beat Manny Pacquiao. He doesn't feel he should have to jump through hoops to secure an alphabet title. Uh, Ugas, incidentally is the only fighter who has hung a loss on Jamal James. Anyway, both of these boxers, James and Butayev, are fighting for the first time in 2021, and they each fought just once in 2020. Kieran, give me the scouting report on James as a fighter. What stands out about his fighting style, and what would you say are the most meaningful results on his record? James is long and lean. He's like a budget Tommy Hearns. Um, Mm -hmm. And like Hearns, he isn't keep away jab friendly boxer you'd expect um from looking at his physique um he, he uses his left hand to sort of set up a digging right cross he likes to be in that half space like not quite in the pocket in front of you but not a full range either to set up a punch and then and then he'll frequently throw four five six punches in a row his punches can be a bit wide at times you'd like to see him straightening and shortening them up he's not much of a one punch ko guy perhaps because of that but he will look to outwork you or wear you down. His defense looks a little bit open at times, but it's actually a, some, a bit tighter than it appears. He keeps his left hand a bit low. You think, you know, he could be a bit vulnerable to an overhand right, but his right hand is often stuck to the side of his face. And, and he does actually have very good upper body movement. So sometimes he's on the ropes. It looks like he's in trouble, but he's actually slipping quite a lot of the punches that are coming in. Uh, he does like to switch it up. He likes to go to the body as well which does kind of give up his height a little bit, but he does move in and out quickly. Um, some of his good results, uh, he had wins, nice sequence of wins in 2015 and 2016 against Juan Carlos Abreu, Javier Molina, and Wally Amatoso, who have since, not exactly, you know, have since perhaps plateaued, but were solid enough prospects slash contenders at the time. Uh, subsequently, he had a body shot KO win over Diego Chavez, which is a really impressive result yeah. against the guy who'd gotten a split draw against Tim Bradley in a controversial DQ loss against Brandon Rios and his two most recent outings were points wins over Antonio DeMarco and uh, Thomas Delorme. His biggest name is that one L that you mentioned against Ordenis Ugas. Hard fought, but a clear and unanimous defeat. A, a good win there for Ugas. The question I think is whether that Ugas loss shows that James isn't quite at that top level. Or at least that's one, one of the questions. And I think the other question is whether we'll find out anything more in that regard from Butayev. Um, Butayev is much less tested. Uh, Besputin might be the only world-class fighter he's faced. So is there anything on his record that indicates to you, Eric, whether he's ready to face someone of Jamal James' quality? And describe his strengths, weaknesses, and style for those who are going to be seeing Butayev for the first time, which I'm guessing is probably most of the folks who are listening. Yeah, I would think so. So uh, addressing the record first, um, just based on what he's done in the pros and who he's faced, uh, this is a massive leap. Um, He he fought Besputin, who's very good. Uh, He lost, but it was close. And Desputin was not all natural, so it doesn't count. Um, mm. But it was still a, a valuable 12 rounds of experience. But the rest of Butayev's pro record beyond the Desputin fight 
there's nobody you've heard of. Um, he did score a showbox win in 2017 over Yanir Gonzalez, who was undefeated at the time, but then has gone 0-3 since, uh, including a stoppage loss to Jamal James, incidentally. Um, KO3 over Leonardo Tyner, a noted trial horse. That's about it. But Butayev went 392-8 and eight in the amateurs. 400 wow. fights, and he won 98% of them. Uh, he could have fought in the 2016 Olympics, but decided to turn pro instead. So bottom line, as a pro, James is a big leap up for him. But he has pedigree. He has experience. He will not be overwhelmed against James. As for what he brings to the table in the ring, he's trained by Joel Diaz, for starters. That's a strength. Uh, Butayev is aggressive, but not reckless. He, he's a pressure fighter with skill. He can switch to southpaw. He has a lot of energy and just keeps coming. He's an outstanding body puncher. You have to see his body shot KO of Terry Chatwood in his last fight. That is about as much agony as I've ever seen someone in after a body shot. Um, Stylistically, if we're comparing him to notable fighters from that former Soviet part of the world... He reminds me of Arthur Beterbiev a little. Uh, he, he's certainly more Beterbiev than Bevel. Um, I'd say mm, yes. his best punch is either those body shots, his lead left hook, or he also has a good chopping overhand right. Uh, as for a weakness, it's that he doesn't use the jab enough. It, it doesn't really jab his way in. Mostly just walks in and wants to trade punches in close, and as a result... He can be outboxed, which is how Besputin piled up points against him. Uh, but anyway, I, I like what I see out of Butayev and not giving away my pick at all yet. But I'll just say for now, I love this matchup. And that's not Showtime Shill Raskin talking. This is a legit great piece of matchmaking here. <laughs> Um, the scheduled 10-round co-feature also features welterweights. Our favorite prospect, everybody's favorite prospect, really, uh, Jaron Boots Ennis makes his eighth Showtime appearance, and he's facing veteran Thomas Delorme, who is not shy about taking on challenges. His last five, he's fought Jordanis Ugas, Jesse Vargas, undefeated at the time Terrell Williams, Amantis Stanionis, and Jamal James. Ennis is 27 and 0, 25 KOs. Delorme's record is less pretty at 25, 5 and 1 with 16 KOs, but with that opposition, you can understand why. Uh, Kieran, we've been waiting a while now to see Boots Ennis tested. How likely is it that Delorme is the guy to push him? Uh, Ennis's last 17 straight wins have been by KO. He's never been past six rounds, and based on the scorecards listed on BoxRec, I only found one round that any judge ever scored against him. <laughs> Which of those streaks is Delorme a threat to end, if any? So not long ago, I would have 100% considered Delorme the man to, to sort of push Ennis. Um, look, his pro career hasn't quite panned out Delorme the way we thought it would. He, he was regarded as a can't-miss prospect when he first showed up on Showbox 2012 good lord um he's been around a while um but it hasn't quite you know happened for him he looked great he scored an early ko win in that outing but by year's end he'd suffered his first loss by a tko he was blown out by terence crawford in his first and so far only world title challenge no shame in that but since then the wheels have been if not coming off wobbling a little bit and Although his standard as opposition, as you point out, it's been extremely high. He's been failing to get past a progressively slightly lower of op- quality of opposition. Um, uh, outside of Abreu and Crawford, though, he's gone the distance in his losses. And I didn't also myself want to give away my prediction here. I had been tempted to say 
you know, when this was first mooted a while back, that the most likely streak for him to end, you know, would be the KO streak. But thinking about it more, seeing how they are traveling in slightly different directions, again, without giving away my prediction, I now think that perhaps the most likely of those three streaks that you've mentioned for him to end is the six rounds or less one. Yeah, there have been some losses on his on his record, but yeah, they have been quality losses against quality opposition, and he has gone the distance in them. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't exactly push Ennis here and, and ask too many questions of him, but certainly gives him a bit of an outing. Well, I hate to uh, I, I hate to interject logic into this whole thing, but uh, he's certainly more likely to end the six round streak than the uh, go the distance streak. Because in order to go the distance, you have to go past Indeed. six rounds. So you are correct. There you go. <laughs> sorry, sorry for putting math in the podcast. But... <laughs> yeah, I was never. I was. I was always an English major, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> The opening bout on this card is also a 10-rounder, this one in the lightweight division, uh, between two men whose last fights were both on Showtime. Michelle Rivera, the guy who says people tell him he looks like Muhammad Ali, but neither Eric nor I quite see it. Um, He got off the canvas in the sixth round to stop John Fernandez in the eighth in July to run his record to 21-0 with 14 KOs. He takes on Matias Romero, who gave Isak Cruz a tough fight in March, but ultimately lost a unanimous decision, his first defeat. So he comes into this fight at 24 and 1 with eight KOs. These are young fighters. Rivera's 23, Romero's 25. Uh, and there's a really interesting personal wrinkle here. Um, Romero was trained by Herman Casado until this fight was signed, but Casado trains Rivera. So he dumped Romero, but he didn't just dump him for this one fight. He said he's, quote, letting him go for good. So what did those recent fights on Showtime, Eric, tell you about both fighters? And with both of them about to face someone stylistically very different from his last opponent. Are those results even relevant to this matchup? Uh, So Rivera's fight with Fernandez tells me, quite obviously, that he can deal with some adversity. It wasn't a hard knockdown. It was partially a balanced thing. But still, he got up, dusted himself off, and knocked out a big puncher two rounds later. Romero's fight with Cruz, it told me that he's no pushover if he can go 12 with a guy like Pitbull Cruz. But it also told me that he's a bit of a stinker. He, he, he runs some, he holds some, he has skills, but he just does all these negative things that make it tough to score close rounds in his favor. Uh, but yeah, you asked about the styles. Yeah, this fight will be nothing like the last fight for either one of them. Cruz is like 5'2", 5'3", something like that. Yeah. Rivera is 5'8", so Romero is facing a completely different situation. Trying to maintain distance, holding when the opponent gets close, I, I'm not sure that... A, Approach applies against Rivera. I actually think Rivera could be just the wrong style for Romero. Meanwhile, Rivera just got done fighting a fairly raw puncher in John Fernandez. Now he's going against a boxer who's only scored one stoppage win in his last 11 fights. Rivera's challenge will be to not get frustrated. Romero is capable of frustrating you, especially if you have your mind set on a KO. It's going to be a challenge for Rivera to stay focused if Romero isn't letting him do what he wants to do. It's, it's an interesting style matchup, but very different from what I said about the main event between James and Butayev, which I think promises to be an extremely fan-friendly meshing of styles. All right. We're going to actually go back to our picks shortly, um, even though we've hinted at them a little bit in yep. this segment. But before we do that, let's talk to this week's guest. Um, and we last saw him in action. Scoring a decision win over Thomas Delorme back in August 2020. And as we mentioned, he also has wins over the likes of Antonio DeMarco, Diego Chavez, and Wally Amatoso. And he will be putting 
his 27 and 1 record on the line on Saturday in the Showtime main event against Rajab Utayev. Jamal James, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. And uh, so, so you're fighting in just a few days, uh, as as Kieran said, against uh, Butayev. And like a lot of fighters, you haven't been able to keep very active during COVID. This is only going to be your second fight in 27 months and your first in a little over a year since that impressive win over Delorme in a tough fight. What has this period been like for you in terms of trying to stay in shape, keeping your focus, etc.? Uh, you know. I take I take this job very seriously, so I always stay in the gym and stay training. Um, it was frustrating a little bit because we had other fight dates set that were earlier, but they just kind of kept falling through for one reason or another. But you know, I'm just glad to be able to get back in the ring now, uh, coming up, you know, this next weekend. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was going to ask how close you came to to lining up other fights in the interim. So you 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 had a couple that were that were almost there, but I guess that sort of forces you to stay in the gym if you think a fight is right around the corner. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, we've just been grinding it out. So right. I'm, I'm super ready. Okay. So your opponent, Butayev, he's not nearly as battle-tested as you are. He has fewer fights, and he's got none against the sort of opposition that you faced. What do you know about him, and what sort of a fight are you expecting? Well, you know, at this level, man, all these guys come, and they bring their A game. Um, Mm. uh, Obviously, like you said, I feel like I have more ring experience uh, in the the professional boxing field than he does, but you don't never overlook anybody when you get in the ring with him you know what i mean so i'm expecting him to come strong and i'm expecting him to be prepared uh you know if i'm if i'm a title holder then all these guys want my spot obviously so they're not going to come just to be you know uh falling over right they're coming to win so one interesting statistic about you, speaking of uh, people falling over, is uh, that, that you have been knocked down three times in your career, um, w- once a piece in three separate fights, and each time you've gotten up and come back to win that fight. So I, I have two questions about that. First, how badly have you been hurt on any of those occasions? Were any of them like serious knockdowns where you were in bad trouble? No, you know, most of them were actually more like slips that the ref would call knockdowns. Um, a couple of them, you know, uh, I would lose my balance from a hit, but it wasn't necessarily like I was really buzzed up and like kind of, uh, you know, where my my equilibrium was knocked off. I mean, I have been caught in some shots, but I wasn't like dropped. I, I had to, you know, kind of survive a, a couple a couple times where I got caught with a nice shot and just had to shake it off real quick. So, you know, all the times that I was down, though, I didn't really feel like uh, I had to really figure something out and pick myself up to and, and try to get back to it. You know, it was more like, oh, okay, they're going to count that as a knockdown. All right, I guess <laughs> I'll just, you know, just keep keep my head straight, listen to what the corner tells me, and then just get it back, you know, later on. Okay. Um, but that, so then for my second question about it, then even if you weren't badly hurt necessarily with those knockdowns, you said you have taken some hard shots and, and been a little buzzed at certain points in your career. And this goes back to what Kieran was asking about how much more battle tested you are than your opponent, Butayev. What does it do for your mental game to have weathered a few tough spots and, and know that you can get through them? You know, it just, 
it, it just allows you to know that you can handle that. You know what I mean? You don't lose your composure if that does happen. You know, sometimes if guys uh, have, you know, a paper built record, you know, not saying that this guy does, but, you know, if they haven't been battle tested hard or they've only fought, fought guys that, you know, were perfect for their style and kind of easy for them, then when they get in there against somebody tough, you know, who's on an equal playing field with them, or above, it might mess up their whole focus and their confidence and everything, you know what I mean? Because they're not used right. to overcoming that type of obstacle. But me, myself, you know, I fought guys who have been extremely, you know, strong and tough and have their own strengths and um, had to come back in the later rounds, maybe because I might have lost the first part of the fight, so I had to come back in the later rounds to win fights. And that just, you know, just as a... a self-affirming that I can do that you know what I mean so you know if there is a tough round you know if I do have a tough round or something I don't lose my head about it or or it doesn't break my spirit I just I just like okay you know let me listen to what my corners are going to say and then you know we'll get that one back you know right so the only fighter to beat you in the pros is Ordenis Ugas by decision and that was five years ago if you beat Butaev, if the alphabet body involved has its way, you could meet Ugas after that. How much would it mean to you to get that rematch? And would that be the number one fight on your wish list if you were to get past Butaev? Yeah, man, I would love a rematch with him. Um, you know, he's a great, he's a good fighter, man. He's a great fighter. Just be Pacquiao, you know. So he's at, you know, his name is, you know, top of the top right now. And you know, like he, like you just said, he's my only loss that I ever took but it was kind of you know I, I wasn't able to have a full camp for that fight so it was more of a short notice fight so I would love to and still went the distance with him and had a good fight with him so I would love to see you know and uh, uh, what it would look like if we both had full camps I was gonna ask like because you've been in the ring with him you know how good he is were you kind of expecting him to beat Manny Pacquiao were you surprised by the result of that fight I didn't know what was going to happen, man. You know, uh, he did, he he obviously won clear. You know what I mean? I thought he definitely uh, beat him. Um, I think, you know, man, he was just he, – he, was, he wasn't moving like he usually does. And, and you know, uh, it wasn't uh, the Manny that I'm used to seeing. But that could be because, you know, it was, it was his time to bow out or it could be that uh, Ugas played his game perfectly and beat him you know what i mean i don't want to take anything away from his win because you know that was a it was still a good fight and a tough fight for both both of them regardless um but it was definitely a shocker for sure you know because yeah i mean he wasn't even originally supposed to fight pacquiao so so to be able to take the fight you know what was it like a week or two weeks yeah. Uh, he took his, that fight and then go out there and, and perform like that and, and get that win over, you know, a big name like that was, uh, you know, good job for him. You know what I mean? It was, it was cool. And, and of course, his having gotten that win were a rematch to happen. It would be so much bigger now for you, wouldn't it, than it otherwise would have been? For sure. Yeah. All right, so so we've talked about uh, a fair amount of in-ring stuff so far, Jamal, but you're you're an interesting person outside the ring uh, too, especially in how you try to give back to your community. And in, in Minneapolis, uh, you founded a, a program called Pursuit of Discipline in 2017, and you speak weekly to kids and young adults. 
Can you tell us a bit about what your message is? And I'm also curious, what kind of impact have you seen the program have? Yeah, I volunteer and, and came up through a nonprofit organization called the Circle of Discipline. And then, um, you know, what I do down there in between fights is work with, you know, young men and women, uh, take them through, uh, you know, physical workouts, teach a little bit of boxing technique and stuff like that because uh, bo- amateur boxing is one of our programs. And um, I created a leadership group, like you said, called A Pursuit of Discipline, which I run with my brother, Rebel Tekle, and a, a, a good friend of mine named uh, Kellen. And we basically try to teach uh, life skills and lessons that you don't get taught in schools and sometimes at home, you know what I mean, to these young men and women as they're, as they're getting older and getting ready to, you know, be adults of their own. So we, we talk about things like uh, financial literacy and, and discipline. We talk about what it is to have a work ethic. We talk about, you know, um, relationship stuff, whether it's uh, an intimate one or a friendship one or whatever, you know, and how to deal with that. And then we also have a lot of guest speakers and take them on trips to different businesses and different uh, people who are successful within their career paths, like lawyers or doctors or whatever else, and let them talk to these young men and women just in case that they might be, you know, thinking of pursuing a career path like that or opening their own business, they can talk to people that are actually doing it and get inspired and get some knowledge, you know? Hmm. Yeah. That, that, that sounds really cool. Is, is it one of those things where, you know, you're running this program now and, and you sort of look back and say, gee, I, I wish something like this had been available to me when I was a teenager. Is it the kind of thing that you really could have used? Yeah, most definitely. You know, and it was something that I did. Give. It just wasn't a program. So, you know, when I was coming up as a kid, doing the boxing at the circle a lot of times after workouts a lot of the older guys you know would just hang around and kind of you know just talk and conversate and a lot of us younger kids will be you know kind of hanging around them just kind of listening in and they would teach us those lessons you know what i mean they would be like you know if you ever you know if you ever get you a job man you need to save some money you need to do this man because this and you know and they'll just be like something more social but um, as our organization grew, we, you know, we started being able to work with so many kids that we didn't have time to be as social with them. We once they were in there, we put them through a workout class and get them going and work, help them with their technique and stuff like that. And then we're like, all right, you guys got to get out of here because we got another group coming in. And I just felt like, well, man, we're missing out on those type of experiences with that, with these, with these kids or these young men and women. So we should actually set up a program where it's like, you know, this time over here is designated just for that. And a lot of them, you know, uh, receive a lot from it and said that they, they, they love the program and they come and, uh, you know, it's actually helped a lot of them in their lives, man, and get them set up correctly. Yeah. That's fantastic. Congratulations on doing that. Um, look, last year was, a, a tumultuous one um, for you and for many people uh, on top of the pandemic that we were all dealing with uh, George Floyd's killing took place just blocks from where you live. If I understand that the spot where he was killed, like that's on your route that you run every morning and potentially maybe because of complicating your perspective on it. I understand your brother is a police officer. Um, what can you tell us 
about that time that those of us outside Minneapolis might not understand? I was just extremely hectic, man. You know what I mean? There was a lot of anger and frustration out there in the streets um, and around the country, really, for anybody who's actually seen that, mm -hmm. seen that video and can relate to, you know, that type of injustice. I've seen it before within their own communities, you know, it just, it was like the, the straw that broke the camel's back and it just kind of, you know, just kind of set off unrest and, and, and you know people just uh reacted in a way that they only knew how or only felt comfortable with after seeing something like that you know um and it was just crazy it was crazy you know what i mean because like you said man, um, i'm right down the street from where that happened and that video got out and stuff later that night was when uh you know people were marching and doing all the stuff and then and then when it got dark out and then it got crazy and our neighborhoods got burnt up. So, um, you can, you could, the smoke, I mean, was literally coming in the windows <laughs> of our house. You know what I mean? And you could hear, you know, shots being fired from whatever was getting shot out there. So it was a little crazy. How much of a sense of relief was there with the guilty verdicts? Uh, you know, it was, I'm not going to say that there wasn't a relief because everybody was on edge because if he wouldn't have got, <laughs> hmm. if he wouldn't have got a guilty verdict, you know, ain't no telling what would have happened. You know hmm. what I mean? But it was also like one of those things where it's like, okay, well, I'm glad he gets convicted, but you know, this man still lost his life. You know yeah. what I mean? He's still, you know, so it's still kind of like a, it's something that you can't really uh, get, full closure or feel real fulfilled on you know what i mean you could be yeah. somewhat satisfied that okay finally you know the system worked in a way where they locking up you know we're getting some type of uh justice for for what happened but it still isn't like full justice because you know this guy's gonna get locked up or this guy's dead you know what i mean and right. die gruesomely so it's just kind of like a weird thing to think about. Right. Um, yeah, I, we, we talked about it a little bit on the podcast at the time, um, even though it wasn't a boxing story. Uh, you know, there was a story that y you couldn't kind of avoid talking about a little. And of course, it was at a time when there wasn't a whole lot of boxing going on. And at the time, we were wondering if maybe this is going to prove a, a tipping point in combating racism, in recognizing the extent of some of the problems in our society and, and in our policing. Looking back, do you feel like anything has really changed since George Floyd was killed? Yeah, I think some things have changed. But, you know, I think the problem is that it's just kind of slow and unseen. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So people that are in there, that are really doing this work and setting these marches up and actually uh, paying attention to the legislation that's being passed and different laws and stuff. Um, and, 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 you know, the organizers, they've, they've done some great work and they got some things changed, but uh, not everything, you know what I mean? Uh, not everything that was asked for. And it's very slow. And it's one of those things where, uh, the problem, you know, some of these big problems that 
we are faced with and we're talking about stems from numerous problems. So it's not like you can fix one thing and then the problem is fixed. You have to fix and address multiple things in order to get the desired result, yeah. which is, which is, you know, which makes it more elaborate and a little bit more hard to, you know, fix. And, it, you know, when you, when you're doing the work, you kind of understand that it's not something that can happen just overnight. It might happen and hopefully in the next five years, 10 years or whatever else to see how, how it should be or how we want it to be. But in between that time, there's still things that happen that make people, you know, pissed off and, and, and yeah. uh, frustrated. You know what I mean? Cause I mean, even while we're waiting to get the verdict for, for when we were still waiting to get the verdict for, you know, the Chauvin case, there was another kid, uh, Dante Wright, who got killed yeah. by a police officer up here who happened to be my little brother's best friend. You know what I mean? Oh, and, wow. and, um, I'm up, I'm up North training for, uh, I was up North training for, a a fight that, you know, that got pushed back. So I'm up there cause I thought I was going to be fighting sooner training. And then I hear that news and it's just like more frustration. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, it's one, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's coming along, I think, you know, and I'm hopeful and, uh, and just watching, but you know, it's, it's also slow and slow can be very frustrating to a lot of people. Right. Yeah, it feels almost trivial to bring it back to boxing for our final question, but um, you are making your Showtime debut uh, on Saturday at age 33. How critical is this fight in terms of charting a path for where your career goes from here? And, and is it enough for you just to win or do you feel you need to make a statement against Butayev? Uh, this fight is as critical as every other fight. You know what I mean? Like, mm. if you don't win, <laughs> if you don't win your fights, you don't get the opportunities. You know what I mean? And that's uh, realistically my philosophy when it comes to fighting these guys. Um, you might not have, you know, as big a name as a Ugas or a Spence or a Sean Porter or something like that. But I guarantee you, if I lose to them, then that's going to knock my opportunities to get those fights way down. You know what I mean? So when you look at it like that, the, that fight is just as big as having a fight with one of them. And, you know, obviously you want to win in spectacular fashion, but at the end of the day, you know, you got to win. If you want to get a, a, extra opportunities, you know, well, you, you know, you could try to look as pretty as you want and this and that, but if it's a tough fight, then, you know, follow the instructions in your corner and make sure you win the fight or, or do your best so you don't have any regrets later. You know what I mean? <laughs> Indeed. Jamal, thank you for a really excellent and interesting and thoughtful interview. We really, really appreciate it. And congratulations on all the work you've been doing with Pursuit of Discipline and all the best for that and all the best in the ring on Saturday night. Thank you so much. Oh, man, thank you guys for having me, man. And uh, I love the questions, man. A lot of times you get interviews and it's a lot of the same <laughs> A lot of the same questions and stuff like that, but this was a little, uh, it's a breath of fresh air and it was better. So appreciate <laughs> Thank it. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I'll check with you guys next time. Awesome. You betcha. Thank thanks, you very Jamal. much, Jamal. Our thanks again to Jamal. Uh, our hot streak interviewing really interesting and likable fighters continues. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm not just saying that because Jamal very astutely recognized how great we are at conducting interviews. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's time for our official picks for the card. 
And it's going to be tough for either of us to pick against Jamal James after that. Uh, we'll see if either one of us does. The score is tied 56-56 with just over two months to go. And you pick first this time, Kieran. Who you got in the main event, Jamal James versus Rajab Butayev? Well, as, as you sort of touched on earlier, Butayev is the X factor here. Just how good is he? How much is his record burnished by his lack of big-name opponents? Uh, he is, as, as you mentioned, he's a powerful, solid fighter. Got decent fundamentals. He's got a good stiff jab when he uses it. A solid left hook. Um, and he does also really like to dig to the body. The problem is that hook, it looks to me, might be his best weapon, his favorite punch. And I think that's the least effective weapon against James, just the way that James stands and the way he defends himself. Um, in some ways, this could be a real Styles Make Fights matchup and not necessarily in a good way for Butayev. You know, you mentioned earlier about how he doesn't necessarily use his jab enough to, to, to work his way in. He kind of just stands there and then just kind of walk, tries to walk his way in. And I noticed that sometimes he just seems to wait just outside the pocket while he's looking for an opening to, to, to throw a jab and start coming in. That could put him in real trouble against a guy like James, who's lanky and who throws and who's not afraid to throw. Um, I can see Butayev, especially early, waiting for that opening, getting cracked by James, who's just firing and moving before Butayev has a chance to get going. But Butayev is the kind of guy who is going to keep going, I think. I wouldn't be surprised if James starts building up a pretty healthy lead, but Butayev starts closing that gap bit by bit. You see mm. James a bit more getting caught in the ropes, especially if Butayev is able to start landing those body punches and slowing him down. I think I see the first half of the fight being almost a James whitewash, but Butayev really coming into it hard down the stretch um, and really forcing James to dig deep. But at the end of it, it's too little, too late. James's class shows here, I think, and he ends up winning a moderately comfortable, although exciting, unanimous decision. Okay. So, yeah, I think we ultimately are seeing sort of a similar result. Um, I, I wasn't thinking about it necessarily as much in terms of the it starts one way and then starts to tip back the other way as it goes. But that, that does make sense. Um, but, I mean, this is a tough fight, even though we both just became insta fans of jamal james yeah. as a person <laughs> he is not an easy pick here at all this was pretty close to a coin flip for me uh it's interesting with james his punches are looping but yep. they still get there pretty fast and they're accurate he, he can really find the point of the chin with his right hand but i don't think he wants to trade punches with butayev i i think the more action-packed this is the better it probably is for butayev um, not that James hasn't proven himself capable of excelling in an action-packed fight, but against this particular opponent, Jamal has good footwork. I think he should be using it. He should be trying to, to box a fair amount and trying not to let Butayev set his feet. Um, I would expect the fight will play out as sort of a mix stylistically. Some rounds where James is using his feet, some where they're slugging it out. I really think we're going to see an excellent fight on Saturday, a get off the couch and give a standing ovation in my living room kind of fight. Um, and I will pick Jamal James as you did to emerge with a, I think maybe slightly closer than you see it. Unanimous decision win, 115, 113s, 116, 112s. Okay. And honestly, like majority or split certainly wouldn't surprise me. Uh, plus you'd better believe I'll be watching the sports betting apps closely to see what price they'll offer me for a draw. I would not rule out a draw on this one. Okay. Uh, moving on to the co-feature, Boots Ennis versus Thomas Delorme. Look, I'm not insane. I'm picking Ennis to win. Let's get that out of the way. No need to build drama and suspense. But how will he win? 
Dulorme's last three losses were all over the distance. He hasn't been stopped in more than six years, as you talked about earlier in the podcast. And it's weird to say this about a guy who's won three and one in his last five, but I don't really think he slipped at all. He, he's still a very good welterweight and a quality opponent for Boots at this stage of Boots's career. But I tend to doubt he can make it competitive. Ennis is just that special, as best I can tell. Uh, but as you said earlier, in terms of which streak he might end, I will say Delorme pushes Boots more rounds than anyone else has, but just barely. Uh, and I kind of doubt he'll win any rounds along the way. I'm picking Boots Ennis by seventh round stoppage in a one-sided fight. Okay, so I can tell you through the main and co-main, um, we will still be tied uh, if, we, <laughs> okay. if we take the opening bout out of consideration. Look, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, not too long ago, I might have picked Delorme not to win and certainly to ask a lot of questions of Ennis. Um, I'm not sure, as I think about it, how much of that he is going to be able to do, and that's less a reflection on Delorme than it than it is on Ennis. Much the same way that you know. Stevenson's performance on Saturday night was less a reflection on Jamel Herring than it was on Shakur. Delorme will give him some tough looks at times. I don't think he'll allow him to settle into a rhythm too early. It may frustrate him over the first few rounds, but Ennis is going to steadily figure him out. And once he does, he's just going to come marching forward behind those long power punches that he does. Um, he'll hit the groove probably around three or four. And once he does, it will be one-way traffic. Again, this is not to dismiss Dulome, who I agree with you, remains a very solid contender. This is all about Ennis and how good he is, but he's that good. Um, he may put Dulome down once or twice, but I think it's going to be like a corner or referee stoppage, and I've got the same as you, round seven there. All right. Um, the opener, and I rather agree with you here that... Of the three, this has the potential to be the least exciting. It's a little bit of a difficult pick. I, and, and for me, partly because I've only seen a certain amount of both guys. And what we've most recently seen, as you discussed earlier, against very different kinds of opposition. Um, I think, based on what I've seen, that it seems safe to say that Rivera is probably going to be the aggressor here. And he's going to be the one who's going to try to make a fight out of this. The big question is exactly whether he's going to be able to catch Romero. And if he can't catch Romero, what is Romero going to be able to do in return? And actually how committed is Romero going to be to doing something in return? Uh, I think Rivera is probably the more technically solid guy offensively here. He's certainly much more of a front foot guy. He will be the one trying to force the action. It, it is just a question of, of just how, many clean punches are going to land here. I think it might be a bit frustrating. I think it might be a bit sloppy, but I think Rivera is clearly going to be the one who is making the action. I think he's going to be the one with much more effective aggressiveness. And for that reason, I expect Rivera to end up with a unanimous decision win. All right. We are heading into November <laughs> tide. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I we discussed uh, the, the styles the, that I'm not expecting a barn burner here. It looks like you're on the same page. Um, Unless Romero's last fight wasn't who he usually is, my assumption is that he just isn't the barn burner type against anyone. Yeah. Um, I see Rivera as the A side here. He's the guy I would expect to win. But I do think Romero is going to make life difficult for him. He's going to play that spoiler role again and not win the fight, but go the distance and not let Rivera fully shine. I, too, am predicting Rivera by unanimous decision, something like eight rounds to two. But I'll be pleasantly surprised if I'm wrong and Rivera can blast him out in exciting fashion and make our night a little shorter. 
All right. Uh, it is time for the news. And for the second week in a row, injuries take center stage. Uh, first, a very serious one. A former 105-pound title holder, Moises Fuentes of Mexico, suffered a brain injury during a knockout loss on Saturday, October 16th. Uh, he underwent emergency surgery to reduce swelling from a brain bleed. He was placed in a medically induced coma and at last report was stable. Hopefully, we will have a positive update on this story next week. We send him and his family all the very best, and we hope that he recovers and is able to have a full and healthy life after this. Um, it is awkward, to put it mildly, to transition from that into the other injury news, but we will try. Uh, junior welterweight champ Josh Taylor suffered a knee injury, and his defense against Jack Catterall has been postponed from December 18th to February 26th. And Dylan White pulled out of his fight with Otto Verlin. Poor Otto Verlin. <laughs> um, th that was supposed to happen this coming Saturday, citing a shoulder injury. Uh, but there is suspicion from some, not least Otto Verlin, yeah. that the injury was invented so that White can bypass this fight entirely and challenge Tyson Fury for the title and big money instead. Eric, do you share that suspicion and anything else you want to add here? So I typically prefer to give fighters the benefit of the doubt, but it would also be naive not to be at least a little suspicious. Um, the white team got a doctor's statement, but some doctors will give it up easily. Uh, <laughs> see, see various chumps who got doctor's notes saying they have conditions that prevent them from being able to wear a mask during a pandemic, for example. Um, Valine's side says they haven't yet seen proof of the injury, just the doctor's statement in a press release. I guess we'll find out based on what happens next. If White reschedules with Valine, we can assume the injury was legit. If he's back in training soon for a fight with Tyson Fury, then we can be fairly confident the injury is BS. Uh, if it is BS, hey, I get it. Um, I was predicting a Valine upset over White. It's a dangerous fight. Why risk losing out on a much bigger payday business-wise? it would make some sense to fake an injury. The fact that we haven't seen some kind of x-ray yet, it doesn't fill me with confidence. So yeah, yeah color me suspicious. Uh, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but I'm, I'm definitely suspicious. Um, as for Josh Taylor's injury, that's unfortunate, not because I cared about the matchup, but just because it delays other fights for him that I am interested in, uh, the whole chain reaction, basically. And Moises Fuentes, um, I keep searching for updates, haven't seen anything yet. Not sure if that's good or bad news. Mm -hmm. You try to stay positive. Uh, you think of an Adonis Stevenson, who yep. has recovered much more than seemed possible initially. But of course, these situations often don't turn around, unfortunately. And uh, we will just keep Fuentes in our thoughts until we get some better news. Absolutely. Uh, Again, now uh, awkwardly attempting to shift gears, uh, our news undercard concerns a few fights that have been officially added to the schedule. As discussed when you revealed your tweet of the week, Javante Davis is facing Raleigh Romero next. That is now official. It's December 5th, a Sunday night on Showtime pay-per-view from the Staples Center in Los Angeles. We also have yet another date for <laughs> Teofimo Lopez versus George Cambosos. Hopefully this one sticks. It's November 27th at the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden with DAZN, not Triller, televising. And you mentioned last week, Kieran, that after Ryan Garcia dropped out of his fight with Jojo Diaz with an injury, signs were pointing toward a possible Diaz-Devin Haney fight instead, and that's what we're getting. Although it's not quite a done deal yet, apparently, but it's 99% of the way there, and it'll happen on either December 3rd or 4th in Las Vegas. Anything you'd like to weigh in on here, Kieran? 
It's more than a tad unfortunate that after all that date hopping for Lopez Cambosis, they end up settling on the same date as Fulton Figueroa. Um, so, hashtag boxing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but good work by DeZone and Matrim to secure that fight and then to almost nail down uh, Haney Diaz so swiftly after Ryan Garcia, who was supposed to face Jojo Diaz, had to pull out with injury. As for Davis Romero, I continue to maintain it should be a one-sided fight, but... We, when we first talked about this, we talked about how at least the promotion could be interesting. And at the launch press conference, they were indeed yapping at each other. I don't know whether Raleigh Romero thought he was looking especially cool and impressive with his fur coat and no shirt look for that press conference. But he dropped a lot of F-bombs and used the N-word a lot and sure is baking in his status as a heel. Uh, their press conferences will generate some very good material for all access and the fight commercials. And I'll bet not one of the people who see any of them will come away thinking, boy, that Ronnie Romero guy's cool and interesting. I sure hope he wins. Um, <laughs> six weeks of this still to go. Yes. So we shall see. All right. Let's bring it home with the top five list. Uh, you gave me a straightforward assignment last week, Karen. Uh, you asked me to count down the top five heavyweight title fights of all time. Uh, you didn't spell this part out on the pod, but we ended up clarifying it on Twitter when someone asked. It ah, can yes. be real championship fights or alphabet title fights. As long as a recognized belt was at stake, it counts. Um, but, you know, to be perfectly clear, in case there's any confusion, no Foreman Lyle, no Moore Cooper, no Jefferson Harris. None of the thrilling yes. non-title fights between contenders count. Um, so this was a somewhat challenging assignment in that there were about a dozen different fights I can see a case for. And my final order, I feel fine about it, but I also okay. don't feel like 100% committed to it either. Um, kind of tricky to find the right order here, but enough stalling. Let's get going. At number five, part of the idea behind giving me this assignment was to determine how crazy Bob Arum was to call Fury Wilder 3 the second greatest heavyweight title fight ever. And part of my goal was to stick it in your face and find a spot in the top five for that fight from earlier this month, if I could. And I can. Uh, there are there are several fights to consider for this last spot in my top five. And when I get into my honorable mentions, you'll see what just missed, and I'll explain why. But I am landing on Fury, Fury Wilder 3 at number five, edging them out. It was sloppy, and uh, yes, it turned one-sided in the second half, but I... As we discussed uh, immediately afterwards, I thought Wilder remained a threat to knock Fury out until the last couple of rounds, and that kept it edge of the seat enough for me. And the action and drama of rounds three, four, five, that was all-time heavyweight stuff. Um, there's only one other heavyweight title fight, to my knowledge, in which each fighter was knocked down at least twice. Uh, that other one will make the honorable mentions. Okay. And, uh, is, <laughs> and, and is among those I could conceivably have put in this fifth spot. Um, but that fa fact that Fury was down twice, Wilder was down three times, there were hardly any slow moments. I'm putting this at number five, partially to spite you, but partially because it deserves it. Yeah, fair enough. Like I said, I... I recognize there is an exceptionally good fight i found myself sort of pushing back initially at the all-time greatness of it because in my mind i thought by round six you know i figured out who the, who the winner was but part of part of the uh, the mandate here was uh prove me wrong and um <laughs> and i don't and i also don't want to lock myself into one of the a contrarian position of well it was all right but it wasn't that good <laughs> hey you know what let, let 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 the dust settle and you know 
it was a, a pretty damn and pretty pretty damn good and pretty uh, pretty exciting fight. So okay, five number five. It right. is on my list. I will say that I didn't rank my my own list this time, but it is on the list. It's there. So, yeah, so somewhere good, somewhere sort of, is, somewhere in the however many fights you ultimately considered, you're saying it's it's somewhere in there. Okay. Affirmative. And, you know, that's not bad. If we just saw the fifth best heavyweight title fight of all time, <laughs> and all time is a long time. It is. That's not bad at all. All right. Okay. So let's see what else you got. All right. At number four, we go way back to 1978. Uh, the 70s will make a few appearances on my list. Uh, June 9th, 1978 at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. As close and hard fought a 15 rounder as you'll ever see, featuring maybe the greatest round 15 in the history of boxing, yeah. and uh, and it, and it ain't getting topped in the future. Uh, I wouldn't think uh, there might never be another round 15. <laughs> so uh, I'm talking, of course, about Larry Holmes and Ken Norton. The fight was dead even on the cards through 14. Holmes won a wild 15th round on two scorecards and won a split decision. But it was a great high-level boxing match throughout between two future Hall of Famers. Both guys pushed to the absolute limit. This fight is endlessly rewatchable. I think you could make a case for this landing even higher, but I put it at number four. Has to be in there. I mean, and you know, so many great fights have a round, right, or an event or some element of it that take them from the very good to the great. It was a very, very good heavyweight fight through 14. Mm -hmm. The 15th round made it great, I think. Yeah. All right. So next up, I I have another fight, which has one particular round uh, that that stands out, um, but was an outstanding fight throughout. It's a fight we've talked about a couple of times recently with Evander Holyfield and Riddick Bowe, both in the news for generally awful reasons. Uh, It is the first of their three fights, November 13th, 1992, at the Thomas and Mack Center in Las Vegas. And if you wanted to argue this belongs a little lower because it was ultimately not that close of a fight, um, you know, two of the judges had Bowe winning 117-110. Basically, Holyfield needed a knockout to win after that 10th round. So if you want to make the case it should be lower, I can see that, but... For me, the drama of that 10th round, the action throughout the fight, the level these guys were boxing at, and the heart of Evander Holyfield as he did everything he could to retain his title and his undefeated record, it's just an absolute classic. Yeah, in in some respects, obviously it's not entirely analogous, but in some respects there, Evander filling the Deontay Wilder role of being the guy who was getting beaten Mm -hmm. to the point of being beaten up, but... Obviously, doesn't have the one-punch power to possibly turn it around. But my God, if ever any fighter had the the heart and the ability to come back from being on the verge of defeat, it was uh, Evander Holyfield. So I clearly a modern classic. Okay. All right. So there's probably not a ton of mystery regarding <laughs> what remains on my list. I only have to say two more boxers' names the rest of the way. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think, why don't I break format a little bit and reveal two and one at the same time, since one will be completely obvious when I tell you two, and maybe it was obvious the moment you gave me the assignment. Um, at number two, the first Ali Frazier fight, perhaps better referred to as Frazier Ali uh, in 1971, the fight of the century, uh, still the biggest event in boxing history, save for maybe Lewis Schmeling too about as well as a heavyweight championship fight has ever been fought. Remarkably elite stuff for all 15 rounds. Frazier with the dramatic left hook knockdown to seal it. Not quite an all-action war, but a great fight just the same that was elevated by the magnificent spectacle of it all. And at number one, of course, their third fight, the Thrilla in Manila, 
cue Tom Hauser talking about how they were fighting for the championship of each other. Uh, it ended in the ultimate game of chicken as both corners were ready to throw in the towel after the 14th round, but Frazier's corner did first. So Ali TKO 14 Frazier in a fight. Every boxing fan has watched many times and heard described ad nauseum. So I don't need to say any more. It's the greatest heavyweight title fight of all time. And even Bob Arum thinks so. Yes, yes, indeed. And of course, three is slightly better than one, simply because both men were not quite at the quality by mm-hmm. the time of the third fight that they were at the first. It, it, the overall quality of the boxing perhaps was maybe not as high, but because neither of them could get out of each other's way, yep. uh, it was just an absolutely brutal effort. And when you add to that the heat, in which they were fighting, the circumstances there in the Philippines. It's, boy, it's going to be hard to see that ever tops. Um, and for the likes of Bo and Holyfield and Fury and Wilder to get that close on your list, goes to show, <laughs> not that we're diminishing those fights, but what incredibly high-quality fights that they were to get close to these two epics. So, yeah, I certainly would, don't disagree at all with your one or your two. I suppose just as a thought experiment, it's interesting to ponder, what if Deontay Wilder landed a punch in the 11th round that knocked Tyson Fury out? Uh, if you know, oh, if you, so yeah. Then, then could then. <laughs> right. Then it's top three, and then you have a case that maybe we just saw something better than the, the thrill in Manila, maybe. Yeah. Um, Unque- but... Unquestionably. I, I think I might have even mentioned that in the, in the setup. Yeah, no, no. No question to me. That's the, that's the one thing that would have elevated this into an entirely different. If he'd done the full like Diego Corrales or something right. at the end, that one hundred percent, yes. Right. Okay. Um, so my honorable mentions. Um, it was close for that fifth spot between Fury Wilder three and Joshua Klitschko. Um, but mm-hmm. as we discussed, Joshua Klitschko had some lulls and. When in doubt, I lean toward a lineal title fight over one for an alphabet yep. belt while the lineal champ was on hiatus. Um, the other two knockdowns apiece fight that I referenced earlier was Floyd Patterson, Ingemar Johansson, three, a wild one. Patterson down twice in the first, Ingo down later in the same round, and then down for good in the sixth. Uh, again, I could see a, a top five case for that one. Um, the, uh, the 120 year olds in our audience will be deeply angry that this one didn't make it, but, uh, I'll at least give it a mention. Jack Dempsey versus Louis Furpo. It was great for its time. I suppose. Um, I actually rewatched it start to finish. It's not that long. So it was easy to rewatch this week leading up to this. It doesn't quite hold up as a great fight. Um, Dempsey going through the ropes is an all time great boxing moment. But every other second of the fight is just Dempsey beating on Furpo, jumping on him as he tries to rise from knockdowns. Right. We don't, we don't get that many knockdowns now, right? There's just simply no way because Dempsey's right. just waiting for him to get up. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it's on some all-time top five lists, uh, but, uh, but not mine. And um, a few others quickly. Ali Foreman, The Rumble in the Jungle, mm-hmm. amazing drama and atmosphere, not quite one of the best heavyweight title fights ever. Um, perhaps slightly underrated, I would put Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson in my top 10. Interesting. Yeah, yes. I actually find it a, a fairly thrilling fight. It's not just a great upset, in my view. Um, Rocky Marciano winning the title from Jersey Joe yep. Walcott uh, with a come-from-behind 13th-round knockout. That gets a mention. Another come-from-behind KO, Joe Lewis, avoiding the massive upset and stopping Billy Kahn also in the 13th round. Um, this next one, 
I can't put it on my top five because no footage exists, but uh, look up Joe Jeanette KO49 Sam McVeigh sometime. (laughs) I recommend everyone read up on that. It warrants a a mention here. And um, lastly, I'll just mention a fight that I think is slightly overrated. Some might put it in their top 10. I don't. uh, The first Holyfield-Tyson fight. It was a great Mm. upset, great drama, kind of subpar action most of the way, though. Yeah, I had all of those except Holyfield Tyson on my list. The only other couple that I had that wouldn't have gotten close to my top five, but I thought, do they belong in an honorable mention one? Lennox Lewis, Vitaly Klitschko. Decent, decent scrap while it lasted. Bit sloppy. Yeah, but decent scrap. Yeah, that was um, one that as I was putting this together, I was like, well, I know it's not getting close to my top five, so I'm not even jotting it down. But obviously, gotcha. were I were I doing a top dozen or so, I would have had to strongly consider it. And maybe even, you know, since I mentioned Holyfield Tyson because I consider it overrated. Uh, but so I actually might have put Lewis Klitschko ahead of something like that. Yeah. And then the only other one and I hesitate to suggest, I mean, again, not top five, barely top 10, but worth mentioning as a decent fight. My only hesitation about mentioning it is it gives some credibility to a particular title belt. Like we said, it could be title mm. belts, but there was a period where one organization in particular was absurd who they were crowning as heavyweight champions. Michael Mora, Burt Cooper? Decent oh, fight. so what was there a title? Uh, well, I think that? the. Um, I guess I didn't realize I it because I sort ends of. with an O. Oh, well, right. Okay. So I know the title you're talking about, <laughs> especially now. I um, think it was. So I met, as I was like rushing through the list of Foreman Lyle and others that wouldn't qualify, I think I mentioned that there. Uh, so uh, if, if indeed that was for a uh, minor belt, then, uh, then I should uh, take back that it didn't qualify. It did qualify, but yeah, certainly wouldn't make my top five, but it is an all out war for sure. Michael Moore yes. and Burt Cooper. Yeah. That, that was, that was the only other one, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, basically very similar lists. Like I said, I didn't try to order them. I think it would have been very difficult. I would have had Ali, uh, Frazier three at one and probably Frazier Ali one at two. Right. Um, yeah, I feel like disagree the, the... with having Holmes Norton or Bo Holyfield in the top five. Right. I, yeah, I think the fifth one would have been the hard spot for me too, actually. Yeah, that's kind of what I found as I was as I was putting it together. One and two were almost beyond debate, um, and then I felt pretty good about my three and four in some order, and then it got really tough to figure out what really deserves five. And I could be overrating Fury Wilder three based on recency bias. You could be underrating it for the same reason. Exactly. We, we do kind of need to let the dust settle a little bit and, and figure out just how great it was. But I'll say, Bob Arum, you weren't too far off. It, it, <laughs> it is an all-timer. Exactly. Hey, and how many of those did he uh, promote? Did he, so Don King did the other two, right? So he's got three in the top five. Yeah. Because uh, he co-promoted. Did he? Was he involved in the first one at all or not? The Ali uh, Frazier. I don't know. We, we're, uh, he wasn't, was I, he? We don't get to say this often, but I feel like we're both uh, too young to know all these things. Um, yeah, <laughs> like, I, I know he was involved with Ali at points in his career. Uh, yeah. and I, don't I feel know like that... Tim Ryan, when we had him on, gave us a good like breakdown of what happened in that. And I don't. And promotionally speaking, it was some obscure promoter at the time, I think. Yeah, so, could, but could he's got been. two of the top five at least there. Yeah, there we go. That's not not bad. not bad, Bob. That'll do. That'll yeah. do. All right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We might be back 
on Friday with a money punch episode if we see some interesting odds on the James Butayev card. And then we will be back quite a bit next week for Canelo Plant Fight Week coverage. Uh, Full details, TBD, but safe to say there'll be more than just the one podcast previewing that one. Um, Also, in terms of previewing and looking ahead to that, we sort of mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, All Access Canelo Plan. Uh, That debuted this past Friday. is going to be uh, available on Showtime On Demand. And episode two is coming uh, to Showtime on Friday, October the 29th. So do check them out. Do come back next week or perhaps Friday. And until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.